The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey, and joining me today, we have two guests today, not just one. We have, returning to the show, Bob Mackey. Hey, it's good to be back. And our special guest, who formerly worked for Konami, is now over at WayForward, Tom Hewlett. Welcome. Fuzzy Pickles. And I brought you on, Tom, and also Bob, because you two are very fond of a little game that came out 20 years ago last week. It's called Earthbound, and we're going to be talking about it this the entirety of this episode. It's very exciting. So what we're going to do, we're going to do a little trivia, and then we're going to continue on into kind of more in-depth analysis, and then we're going to finish with reader mail, and then we're going to ask, does it all hold up? So... Let's get started with some trivia. So Earthbound was originally, was the sequel to Mother, which came out on the NES. It was the second in what ended up being a trilogy, though, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think like they're interconnected. They're like three separate stories, right? There are some ties. Um, They try to make like a through line with one character throughout the last two games. But um, I feel like Earthbound is really just a remake of uh, Mother, the first game. Yeah, yeah. It was created by Shige Sato Itoi, who's really kind of interesting character. He's been kind of in and out of Nintendo, though he seems to be more of an independent figure. He's worked with Hal. He apparently has done some Iwata Asks uh, interviews. He's good friends with Satoru Iwata. And in fact, when Itoi was working on Earthbound, apparently... It was Iwata who managed to come in and save it at the last minute with uh, his programming genius, his programming ninjutsu, because That's... the program looks like it'd be in real trouble. That gave so... me a lot of respect for him. I was like, he's not just a suit. He has, you know, he's gotten his hands dirty before. Yeah, no, uh, Iwata was, I mean, he the guy knows games. You got to give him that for sure. Um, other little, so it came out here in the U.S. in 1995, as I already said, and I'm sorry to say that it wasn't it, it it didn't do well at all and part of that can be chalked up to maybe the uh worst marketing uh <laughs> campaign for a game ever Bob do you remember it Yeah I mean to be fair it was no less obnoxious than that play it loud era it just smelled bad too on top of that <laughs> The tagline for the game was literally this game stinks because apparently all the kids love fart jokes, at least in 1995. I know. Like, all you millennials have your iPads and your periscopes, but we just wanted to hear about farts and boogers in, in the 90s. It was a much different time. So did you did, were you around for the, the marketing campaign, Tom? Uh, yeah, I, I still actually I have my player's guide here in front of me, and I have the uh, they did a mailer, and they mailed out a $10 coupon to everyone, probably who had Nintendo Power or something. Um, with scratch and sniff stickers and all this stuff, the scratch and sniffs does still work for those curious. It still smells like crap, um, but yeah, it's it's weird. I remember it was a really, really, really big push for Nintendo. They really wanted this game to sell, and they just sold it in the worst way possible. Yeah, not so good. Now, another little piece of trivia that I think is fairly well known at this point, but it bears mentioning. 
Earthbound has some has like at least four level four layers of copy protection if you ever tried to emulate it. So it'll take you through first the scene like it'll freeze and then it'll freeze at a, a screen that says, Okay, you can't please don't pirate your games, but if you manage to get around that, it'll start populating the game with tons of minion like t tons of random encounters and if you still get past all of that when you get to the final boss the game will freeze and delete all of your saved games it's pretty great <laughs> i have to it's figure it's a long that, con that must have been an awada thing because uh, and if so i i tip my hat to him because please understand hardcore, for sure um so do you guys remember the kind of rock guitar that's you can hear throughout earthbound at various points. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on the song, but uh, which which one in particular? Uh, you can you can hear a guitar at various points apparently, and it was apparently played by a guy named M.D. Cigar, but in fact that was Shigeru Miyamoto playing Ooh. guitar. Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's something I wasn't aware of. So, are there any other like little bits of trivia that you guys got? Um, I've got a few things. I mean, I don't want to throw out anything obvious. Just some things that I, I've I've read over the past few years that I maybe I didn't know before. Uh, one of them it was um, it was basically one guy's job for the entire production cycle to make those battle backgrounds. So that was his only job throughout the entire production of Earthbound was just making those weird trippy backgrounds, which I think is a really cool thing that they just gave one guy that duty, and that's all he did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's why there's so many of them. He was like, I'm important, guys. Yeah, and uh, and the music um, is uh, relies so much on samples and all kinds of interesting uh, sampling technology that it actually occupies four megabits of the cartridge, which was a substantial amount just for music. I believe it's a 16 megabit game. It could be 24. Tom, do you know? Uh, I don't know. Okay, I used to know these things. That's how back that's how when, strange I am. Back when megs made a difference. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna say 24. I think Final Fantasy yeah. VI was 16, and that was a big deal for a couple Wait. months. Final Fantasy VI was only 16 because, okay, Street Fighter II was 16. Like, that was the big deal. And then I remember Super Metroid was 24. Oh, then FF6 would have had to be 24. Yeah. yeah. That was a big game. A um, couple of more really quick pieces of trivia courtesy of Moby Games. Uh, first, Ness's father never appears in person. It's because Toy's father was apparently absent for a good part of his childhood. Which is kind of the case with a lot of Japanese uh, developers, unfortunately. Because yeah, it seemed like broad social commentary to me that what maybe didn't necessarily apply to American dads, but definitely was a Japanese dad kind of thing. And secondly, the dialogue of Gigas was in apparently inspired by a traumatic childhood experience where a toy mistakenly walked into an adult movie theater and caught a glimpse of a sex-slash-rape scene in the 1957 movie Kenpei and the Dismembered Beauty. So... There's that. So on that happy note, let's continue <laughs> on. <laughs> and let's talk a bit about our personal memories with Earthbound. How did you guys discover it? Um, Bob, like, what was your first experience with Earthbound? Well, uh, I was reading about it in Nintendo Power because they had their, uh, I believe it was called Epic Watch, which was their RPG section, and that was when Nintendo was still trying to push RPGs on people before Pokemon took off. And they had they had a two-month preview of Earthbound just going over all of the 
different and weird things you could do, like, you know, use ATMs, order pizzas, uh, fight in like, like suburban streets and cities and things like that. And I, I was already way in love with RPGs. And just seeing it in this new context, which is not a context a lot of developers even use today, I was like, I must play this game. Like, so, like, immediately after reading those previews, I put down money at, uh, software, etc. And, uh, back, what, whatever, like, weird, strange, vague pre-order system they had, which was just like, oh yeah, we'll hold it for you, or something like that. Like, my, I think my name was on a post-it note. There was no money exchange, actually. But, yeah, I was there from, like, the moment I saw it. Like, the Nintendo propaganda worked on me, for sure. How about you, Tom? Uh, really similar to Bob's, actually. I was reading uh, Nintendo Power. I poured over those issues. Uh, uh, it came out at the end of the school year, and if I got good grades, which just meant not bad grades, I would get a video game for the summer. So Earthbound was clearly going to be my game. Uh, the only difference is I rushed over to Babbage's instead of software, etc., mm. and uh, got my big giant box and uh, played it all weekend, pretty much. So I was playing Warcraft 2 in those days, so I kind of missed out on Earthbound on its first go, like a lot of people. But that's not to say that I wasn't aware of its existence, because... So, I remember there was an issue of Nintendo Power, and I don't remember which one, It that had a kind of an import feature. It's like, here are all these cool import games that you're totally missing out on. And it talked about adventure, like visual novels, and it talked about... Um, how the Japanese were really into U.S. politics and it had the presidential election simulator on the NES, or the sorry, the Famicom from 1988. And it mentioned a strange little game called Mother, which was an RPG, which, oh, RPGs, Americans don't play RPGs, how strange and exotic. And Mother had all of these strange enemies and it was kind of an interesting, uh, a, a goofy take on on American culture, I guess. That's what it was kind of putting it up as. And I was like, huh, that's odd. And I don't remember why it stuck with me. But then as it continued forward, like, I always just kept hearing snippets. I remember uh, seeing, I do think I saw the ads for it because uh, if I'm, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but the cover of the original Earthbound uh, in the U.S. had the Starman, uh, Starman on the front or the big yellow guy. Yep. Yeah, and I, I remember looking at that art and being like, that's weird. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Toe Jam and Earl. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember there was going to be a Mother 64 for the 64DD. So there was a, much chatter about that. And I was like, uh, cool, Mother 64. Okay, but that never came to pass, obviously, because the 64DD never even came out here, even though it was briefly out in Japan. But then my first real experience with Earthbound slash Mother was Super Smash Brothers. Because... I think that's where a lot of people uh, found out about Ness, actually. Mm-hmm. Because he was a secret character that could be unlocked at the end of the original N64 version of Super Smash Brothers. And I think a lot of people tried Ness and immediately gave up on him because he's a pretty hard character to use. I don't know how much guys. I know Bob that you play some Smash Brothers. Do you play Smash much, Tom? Oh yeah, I'm. I was NES only for a while. <laughs> yeah, I, I was not. <laughs> did you like specifically go out of your way to learn how to deal with his like finicky like stage recoveries and everything? 
Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I loved Earthbound, so when I found out Ness was the hidden character, that was amazing, and then I just, I had to use him because I'm an Earthbound fan. Even today, I can't get back onto the stage with him because, eh. But in any case, much like Fire Emblem, Smash Brothers kind of educated me about what exactly Earthbound was, and I ended up going and reading about it in the, like, the trophy sections, and I was like, oh, so it's not all this game about this big, gross, ugly, yellow guy and scratch-and-sniff stickers. It actually looks kind of cute. But, of course, it by that time, it was pretty difficult to find in the U.S., and by the time I got a uh, Super Nintendo, I don't think it was readily available. It might have it might have been going retailing for like a hundred to hundred fifty dollars already by like nineteen ninety nine. Does that sound about right? I think so. The just the just the main console. Yeah, yeah, the original like console version. Hmm. Uh, uh do you talk about like Earthbound the game itself, the retail price? When I when I say like, what I mean is the game like. On the secondary market, because obviously it wasn't uh, being made anymore. Yeah. Um, I think it was already like it had already like shot up to a hundred bucks at least. Yeah, I mean there was a weird time where it was like Earthbound. Nobody likes Earthbound, and then everyone was getting rid of their Earthbound cartridges, and by everyone I mean retailers. And then like maybe two years after that, it's like everybody wants Earthbound. It's three hundred dollars. Like you should have bought that eight dollar copy at Best Buy. Why was everybody suddenly like I don't? Nobody likes Earthbound. It didn't sell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the reviews were pretty rough because it came out at a very bad time for a game with that art style. Everyone was like, multimedia, CD-ROMs, live action, no, 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 what is this crap? It looks too cartoony, get it out Baby of here. graphics. But, yeah, exactly. It was compared to, like, Play School or something a lot. I, I, I would read that a lot in reviews, and uh, it angered me <laughs> as someone who likes, how, who likes how that game looks. I think it looks really great. I think part of the problem also was that, so... If you look back at 1995 in the U.S., I mean, okay, we were still a year off from Super Mario RPG. Final Fantasy had a foothold and definitely had a fan base, but it was obviously not nearly as big as it would be like a couple years later. Uh, Dragon Quest, or Dragon Warrior, I guess, was basically a non-starter. And as we already talked about, console RPGs were seen as this kind of strange, exotic thing. And Earthbound in particular was really, really different from what we were used to uh, from video games at that time. I don't want to paint games circa 1995 in a really broad brush, but, I mean, you called it the Play It Loud era. And I oh, think for that sure, kind yeah. Of, I think that kind of says all you need to know about how video games were. The Bone Storm era. <laughs> I mean, like, Nintendo had a Butthole Surfer song in their commercials, so I think that says a lot about uh, what they were trying to do. Yeah. Uh, So it's not surprising to me that not only did it not sell well, but that reviewers would be like, what is this? It is far too cute and childish for me. I do not like it. Therefore, I'm going to pan it. Gaming has grown up. Yes, it has. Um, Did you guys ever play Mother 3? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, I gotta ask, Mother 3 or Earthbound, who, which, which one you got? <laughs> um, it's hard to divorce myself from the uh, intense emotional connection I have with Earthbound, so I cannot even, like, 
objectively say in any way like which game is better. I think Mother 3 is better in a game design sense, but I think Mother 2 is um is more interesting and less maudlin and has uh, more interesting ideas, I guess. But I think the game it, the gameplay itself is a lot better in Mother 3. Yeah, um, Mo- Mother 3 is interesting because Earthbound is unique in that it's, it was modern day, um, but but not in a, like a persona way, but just a fantasy way. Mother 3 went more abstract and and you're in a, you know, you're in a made-up land on a made-up island with made-up people. So it kind of lost that one aspect, but it was interesting to play a game that built on Earthbound's gameplay. Just because so few so many RPGs ignore or like um, you know, in Earthbound if you approach an enemy and you get an advantage in battle, or if the enemy's weak enough, you don't even have to fight it, it just dies. And so no other games do that. And then Mother 3 did it again, so it's like, yay, they, they, they're, someone's finally expanding on these cool ideas, and then it, they're ignored again, but whatever. <laughs> it's it's funny you brought that up, because after I played Earthbound, I'm like, oh, every RPG is going to do this now. This is such a great idea. Why would you not do this? And then I never saw it again, and it's like, Pokemon, you can do this too. Exactly. Well, yeah, Earthbound was kind of forward-thinking in that regard in general. So since we're talking about it, or talking about Earthbound's battle system in general anyway, like, uh, it was kind of based more on, it was kind of more similar to Dragon Quest, despite, uh, even though it had uh, characters on the on the mini-map, which at that time was really nice because random encounters were still very much a thing, and I'm still, I am personally pretty anti-random encounter. Um, in general, what do you guys think of the battle system? I think it's uh, it's great. It's pretty easy to abuse if you know uh, what spells and items to use. Like in uh, in sub- subsequent playthroughs, I I've banned myself from using multi ball rockets, which is one of Jeff's par- most powerful weapons. Because sometimes you can kill a boss with one of those, and that is just a little too uh, <laughs> a little too much, uh, and it really just discourages you from doing anything else but that. But the cool thing is uh, the rolling the rolling uh, battle HP meter, which is kind of like a gas station pump, which is it's meant to look like that. And when you get hit, that will start rolling down to the number where it's supposed to be. But if you can interrupt that with a healing spell or something like that, you can just bump it back up. And many times when you get a critical hit, that character is going to die, and you have a very limited window of time to rescue them before their HP drains completely. So there's a nice like timing element to it that um, wasn't wasn't present in Dragon Quest at all. Yeah, and I was a big Dragon Quest fan, but, you know, like you said, there weren't a lot of those games over here. So I just liked having another game with that viewpoint. But Earthbound does a lot to make it more exciting. You know, if you get hit really hard, there's the screen flashes. It says Smash really big in a different font. Um, the whole screen shakes. Um, you know, your your little menu bar will, will jiggle and stuff based on what's happening. There's lots of spell effects. So, you know, I felt it was just a new evolution of Dragon Quest, and that was really exciting. How... In depth, does the battle system go? In your opinion, I th- it's not, think it's not oh. too deep. <laughs> yeah, it's not really that deep. I mean, I think it's like if you play Dragon Quest, you fall into rhythms with how you you tackle certain situations. Like this character will build up the shield, this character will stand by, this character will attack. And I think once you understand what your party's capable of, you kind of just do the same thing in most battles. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um. So it's not particularly tough then. I mean, not really. In, it's in, in that Dragon Quest sense. If you're having problems, you can always grind your way to success. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are much different in Mother Three, though. It requires some actual skill, um, more so than in Earthbound. 
I, I suppose there's not a lot to say about the battle system. Is it fair to say that this game is much more about its story than its con- than its actual gameplay? I would say the overarching story is very disjointed. It's more about these interesting little vignettes uh, that are connected in some way, but not super explicitly. Like, it's, I think it's more about the journey than like what your what everything is coming towards in the end. Really, for me, like these just strange little situations and these weird places you find yourself in. Mm-hmm. I think on the battle system, uh, I mean, we we made it sound like really simple and and not exciting, but. Overall, Earthbounds was sort of like Dragon Quest made by people who know why Dragon Quest works. But Mother, the, the preceding game, that had a terrible battle system. Yeah, it, it wasn't very fun to play, and that was more like Dragon Quest made by people who have no idea what they're doing. So even though it was kind of simple, it, it was a big step up from, from the previous game. And what do you think is... Are there any particularly memorable boss encounters or just combat encounters in general in Earthbound? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, I guess I guess that's something interesting about the battle system we skipped over is the enemies sometimes do like weird random stuff um, that isn't necessarily attacking. Like it'll be like, oh, um, you know, so and so chewed on their foot or fell down and got dizzy, and so it gives you kind of a free turn, but it's more fun because it you know there's funny flavor text to go along with it. So a lot of the bosses have stuff like that, or you know, there's there's a there's a cult of people who worship the color blue um, <laughs> who are totally not in KKK outfits. Um, it's just, there's so much weird stuff. It's hard to single one thing out. Yeah. I, I do like how there, those nice little flavor text touches that Tom mentioned are everywhere. Like even when you defeat an enemy, enemies, they don't die. They come to their senses. They like, they shuffle away. They become tame. Like there's always like some, some new kind of text that tells what happens to the enemy when you beat the crap out of them. Like nothing ever dies in this game except for buzz, buzz spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's master belch. He's a giant pile of puke and he, he burps on you through the battle. That's fun. So maybe the marketing wasn't that far off after all. (laughs) They really put a lot of emphasis on uh, Master Belch, and uh, he he wasn't too prominent of a character in that. Uh, it's it's true, yeah. Well, I mean, he belched, and that's hilarious, right? At least to uh, circa 1995, apparently. If you're I mean, that whole Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon humor, yeah. I was expecting slime to be popping out of that that advertisement. Uh, I, I like that when you win a battle, Ness's father, even though you never see him, apparently deposits money in an account that can be withdrawn at ATMs. It's it's a weird little... Like, obviously in a lot of traditional RPGs, you win a battle, you get money at the end of the battle, you move on. So I think it's kind of funny that it goes into that much detail where it's like, oh, no, you don't just get some money, you have to actually go to an ATM and withdraw it. I think that's pretty great. Um, ultimately, I, I feel like the legacy of Earthbound's combat, aside from kind of its weird sense of humor, as we already touched on, is just the fact that it was more forward thinking than a lot of RPGs of that time. I mean, as we already talked about, Final Fantasy VI came out that year, and while Final Fantasy VI's combat is by no means bad, it was also pretty traditional as RPGs go. And I just like the fact that Earthbound had the foresight to kind of move away from random encounters, which 
I mean, you can you can like random encounters if you want. I've always felt that they interrupt the the rhythm of the game. They interrupt the kind of the atmosphere, and I would much rather be able to choose when I can want to get into a battle. Yeah. Um. You can you can decide you can argue with that. You can argue that with me all you want, but that's just <laughs> a personal preference. I, I feel like may, maybe if a developer 20-plus years ago thought, hey, random encounters aren't that good, we need to fix them, maybe that says that they're not that good and people should stop using them today in 2015, you know? <laughs> what? If, if in 1995 they're like, we got to do something about this and still nothing is being done, I think it says a lot. I feel like random encounters smacks of, well, this is the way we've always done it. And th- this is like goes all the way back to Dungeons and Dragons, where you like would uh, potentially roll and have an encounter. So, which fine, but just because you've always done it doesn't mean you always have to do it. Tom, I mean, you're a developer. What's your perspective on this? <laughs> um, I don't like random battles. I don't like random battles at all. Okay. Um, <laughs> It's it's weird to me because the, in Earthbound it added a lot of character because if you're if you're super strong the enemies run away from you and it just adds to that feeling of like I'm the best guy on the block and get out of my way. Um, but it's always the niche RPGs that do it. Like uh, the Persona games don't have random battles. You, they you can see the enemies there. It's always these weird outliers and then everyone else is like, nope, AAA RPGs. It's all about random battles. That's how we do it. Well. These days, even Dragon Quest, which is the bastion of tradition in the genre, has finally moved away from random encounters. Though, I... Or, no, they didn't have random encounters in Dragon Quest Nine, did they? No, you could see uh, the enemies. Yeah, you, can, yeah, you, could, you could conceivably so. avoid them. It was it was a little tough sometimes, but you could snake your way around if you wanted but, to. Right. But that, okay. to me, felt like... Because that was originally going to be an action RPG. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that felt like the concession. Like, okay, we'll give you back your menus, but, but we want to see the enemies. I'm actually glad that they did that, by the way. I I think that Dragon Quest IX was a lot better for going back to turn-based, but that's an entirely different podcast. <laughs> I, I do want to point out, I mean, Tom mentioned uh, something that we should really highlight, the fact that enemies run away from you once you clear an area. Yeah. And by that, I mean their sprite runs away from you. You can still approach them from behind and just get some easy, cheap experience points for free, because normally at that point you will automatically win the battle. If you're strong yeah. enough, the battle won't even start. It'll just say you win. You'll get the experience points. It's so streamlined. I yeah, no, that was pretty remarkable how streamlined it was, given the era and how uh, I, I feel like a lot of developers weren't thinking in those terms at that time. So it was a really smart touch and one that you can kind of continue to see in RPGs today. What with Persona Three, where if you're strong enough, enemies will just start running away from you and you don't have to deal with them, which, I mean, it makes sense, right? If you're, like, super powerful, if the if the aura of power is radiating from you, then it, I, I, I feel like a lot of enemies might be like, well, discretion's a better part of valor and want to run away. So I feel like you're right in that. I think that's another lasting contribution from Earthbound in terms of its actual combat. Well, all right. So we already talked a little bit about the gameplay, but we touched a tiny bit on the story. I I actually think that the story is probably the most interesting part of Earthbound because it's just so different from the the kind of RPGs of that era where... You know, up until that point, we had had lots of swords and sorcery 
I mean, we'd had Fantasy Star, which was Swords and Sorcery in Space. Like I said, we were still a year away from Super Mario RPG, which was a really wonderfully tongue-in-cheek take on the Mario universe. So RPGs very much had... They they were very much still, you know, had that direct lineage to D&D. And I don't feel like we had a ton of instances at that point where developers were really playing with the form. So for Earthbound to come around and for it to be just so different from everything else, just in terms of semi-modern setting, but definitely in a different world, and then you're fighting all of these... Uh, very, very odd monsters and animals and things like that. Um, and it has a really distinct art style and a subtle kind of sense of humor about things. Um, so the actual story is a young boy named Ness uh, investigates a nearby meteorite crash, discovers an alien force that is turning every- that turns everybody into monsters. And you go on a big adventure to go and stop them. And I've heard a lot of people say that one of the underlying themes of Earthbound, and you see this kind of in the final battle, is one of loneliness and maybe homesickness and also a strong thread of nostalgia. And I was wondering if you guys could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, Mother 3 goes for, like, a very direct moral about, like, the dangers of, like, capitalism and imperialism and stuff like that. But the uh, the, the, the moral of Mother 2 is just, like, the importance of friendship. It's a very it's a very broad message because you're, and you're inevitably saved by all the people you help throughout your journey. And while the over, overlying journey is, like, oh, collect the eight things, you're really just helping a lot of people throughout. Yeah, and that feeling of loneliness is kind of, why Nintendo's marketing was disingenuous because they, they treated it like, Oh, it's this wacky RPG and anything can happen. And it's just like your real life, but crazy. And you know, while the game is kind of wacky a little bit at the beginning, once you get to Moonside, even in Moonside, which is creepy, there's this weird darkness to the game, which, you know, is kind of that loneliness theme that you're fighting against by helping people and, and making friends and, you know, learning about the world around you. And I actually had a friend, uh, when I first came to AOL, the first person I met in the Nintendo chat room, couldn't beat Earthbound because he got to the last boss and was too scared to continue. <laughs> and he just, he felt like betrayed because he was in it for this wacky, wacky fun quest. And he finally realized in the final moments that, hold on, something weird is going on and I don't like it. Um, so yeah, I, that's, it's so cool because I think a lot of RPGs, that are more serious and fantastic try to do that. And like, look, this, this villain, he's the end of all things. He's pure hatred, but it comes off as cheesy where in earthbound it somehow like had a realism to it. Yeah. It's like you were fighting a Lovecraftian horror and just trying to comprehend his form hurts you. It's, it's <laughs> like such a dark choice for that game, but appropriate. I think. Yeah. I love that. It's like it where, Oh Yeah. Oh, for sure, Kat, like, not to interrupt, but, like, Itoi loves Stephen King, and there's Stephen King references in the game. Oh, my gosh. And Yeah. And even, I wouldn't be like, surprised the if... the structure of the story is really it-like. Yeah, except there's no child orgy at the end, so we can all be thankful for that. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. <laughs> That's for you book readers. That really happens at the end of it. Don't read that book. It really does, in fact, happen. Yeah. And... But the rest of the book is pretty good. Yes, but that was, again, uh, talking about strange choices. 
I was going to talk about the fact that it is about, what was it, like four or five kids facing down an incomprehensible horror. Um, and there, and in fact, it also has a really strong sense of nostalgia and homesickness, despite the fact that their town is fundamentally evil and corrupted by an evil alien that came down from a meteorite. Oh my God, Earthbound is totally it. <laughs> you just blew my mind. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of references, I think it's funny that uh, is it is it me or does Earthbound kind of reference the end of Final Fantasy where they go back in time to fight a younger version of uh, the main alien bad guy? Because it's a little bit like what happens with Garland in the original Final Fantasy. Uh, am I just imagining that, or do you feel like that's Forget, actually like, a reference? Tom, do you know if, if you do you go back a hundred years at, at the end of Earthbound? You, is, is it a hundred years or do you go more? back or forward? I don't even remember at this point. I forget. You have to put uh, get rid of your human body and you need a robot body and I'm you go ask back the in time. Guide. Hold on. <laughs> because the, the crazy thing about Earth uh, about Final Fantasy, if you're not familiar with the original game for some reason, is that at the very beginning of the game, the beginning of the game seems like your usual damsel in distress kind of story, right? Where you go and you rescue the princess from a guy named Garland, who's a relatively weak bad guy. Right. And and then the game just keeps going. And then at the end of the game, Garland returns. I, I There's like time travel, and then chaos shows up, and you're like going, what, what the heck is all going on? Um, and it really presaged a lot of the more interesting plot twists in Final Fantasy. So I, I thought it was pretty interesting that in Earthbound, the group ends up going back in time to fight a younger version of the main bad guy. It's definitely similar. Yeah, and I, the the final battle, and this is not a spoiler, I don't think, at this point, but uh, the way the final battle plays out really reminds me of the end of Final Fantasy IV, where you summon the help of your friends throughout the world who you also help throughout your, throughout the game. So it's a very similar, like, uh, I don't know, device that they use in Earthbound, but I still like it. What's your opinion of the localization, Bob? Oh my god, it's great. Like, I, I even as standards have increased uh, over the past 20 years, just going back and playing Earthbound, I am just amazed that there is that much level of care and, like, I don't know, attention to detail. Everything is just... It, it carries force this, this really, like... It reminds me of Sam and Max in that... um people are very dry and straightforward about these super absurd things, and that's where the where the comedy comes from. Something like that, or Police Squad, or Naked Gun. Like They have a very deadpan sense of humor about the wackiness, which is what makes it work for me. You know, it's funny. Games like that just did not have a... They had a sense of humor, but it was a lot more broad, I feel like. Um, and I feel like this a lot, of, a lot of this goes to the fact that Itoi, while he's a game developer, he's also an essayist, he's a humorist, he's a writer, and apparently, like, the script in the original Japanese is just fantastic. Um, so, it's really impressive that in an era where localizations were a dice roll at best, that they were able to capture a lot of that in Earthbound's translation. Uh, but apparently, and, and then, of course, Mother 3 ended up getting a fan translation, and... It was kind of a similar case with that. I think the, the the question that I'm kind of wondering is, ultimately, if somebody is going to come back and play Earthbound, 
is it because uh, should they be doing it for the story is it like the story that ultimately makes earthbound really stand out the setting in the story I would say uh, I wouldn't go in expecting, like, an amazing story. Like I said earlier, it's more of, like, the moment-to-moment vignettes and interactions that really make the game work for me. And this, more than any other game, like, whenever I go back to play, I talk to every townsperson, and I make sure I get, like, every last bit of text out of the game as as I humanly can, just because it's all worth looking at. And that's probably the, the, uh, the best thing I could say about this experience. Yeah, like, like Bob said earlier, the game, you know... Whatever the plot is as a whole, you're it's you going around making friends because you help people. Um, so at the end of the game, they can sort of uh, help help you with their you know power of friendship. And in order for that to work as well as it does, um, the situations you go through have to be interesting enough that you feel involved and a part of them. And that's really why you would want to play it. I think is is you know there's so many weird you know there, there's a town overrun by zombies. So do you, you know, drive to the the S Mart and get a shotgun? No, you go get zombie paper and you put it down so all the zombies get stuck to it. Um, so those little instances and vignettes are so clever that you know when when you're reminded of them at the end of the game, you have a real affection for them and you, they make you feel warm and fuzzy. All right. So ultimately, does it hold up, Bob? Oh yeah, for sure. Like I, I played through it again when it came out on Virtual Console, and it had been a decade, and I and I loved every minute of it. And there's not a second of my life that goes by. I'm sorry, maybe not a day of my life that goes by where I'm not <laughs> thinking about Earthbound. I'm not that obsessed, people. Like just the other day, the power went out in my town, which doesn't happen that often. And I wasn't sure if it was just in the apartment, so I went outside, and the power was out everywhere. And I immediately thought of the opening of Earthbound, and I started getting like adrenaline. Like, like, is there going to be an alien that's going to sneak up on me, or like a stray dog, like? I just keep thinking of Earthbound, and that's like, I don't know, it just had that effect on me. Tom? Yeah, I sound like Bob's clone here, but um, <laughs> actually okay. that the house we live in is sort of up a hill from the main town, and then there's a little hill behind my house, and I've wondered if a meteor would crash there and what that would be like, because, you know, Earthbound sticks with you. You, you, you kind of just, when you're in a similar situation, you, you think back to it. It's like a It's like a trip you went on when you were a kid. Yeah. And if you ever come visit Berkeley, California, you may notice it looks a lot like Tucson. At least I think so. So uh, <laughs> please come take the Earthbound reality tour with me. The Earthbound reality tour. I've heard a few people say that. And so it is actually, you can, have, in fact, go play it now. You don't have to pirate it and then have to circumvent all of its different DRM checks. I've heard, uh, you can, in fact, play it on the Wii Virtual Console. I've heard from some people who say that they don't feel like they feel like maybe it's a little rough or very much of its time in terms of pacing and they feel like the combat might be a little simple. Can you guys speak to that? Well, you should still go into it thinking mm-hmm. of like this is a game from 1995. I think many games to stay these days are designed to uh I don't know, fight against our horrible attention spans that we're all losing. And I think that was less of a case in uh, 1995. So I think, as with going back to any old game, you need a little more patience. But at the same time, Earthbound streamlines itself in a lot of ways that RPGs today don't do. So I think it still feels very fresh and, and not stale in any way, really. 
So Earthbound, you should go totally check it out. It's over on the Wii U Virtual Console. It's a little bit, it's a little piece of history. I don't think there's going to be another Earthbound. Do you guys think there will be? I think it's kind of done with that, right? Well, there there kind of is. Um, I mean, Itoi I mean, said that Mother 3 is the last one, but mm-hmm. there's fans making Mother 4. Oh, that's yes, right. Fans, fans are, in fact, making Mother 4. And I think they're even calling it Mother 4, right? And that's like a huge mistake to me Yeah. <laughs> in terms of legality. Just, just call like, Mommy or, like, Mom or something. like Groundbound or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Tom, thanks for coming on the show. Where can I find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Hypnocrit, which is kind of an earthboundy name anyway. Um, and I have a blog I never update anymore www.tomhewlett.com now, Can you speak to what you've been working on these days over at Wayport? Um, my most recent games are uh, Adventure Time Secret of the Nameless Kingdom which is a Link to the Past alike and then I also made Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Danger of the Ooze which is a Metroidvania and I can't tell you what I'm working on now Alright then, thanks very much and we'll talk to you later Thank you Before we go, uh, Tom is already gone. Bob, you may have heard that E3 2015 is just around the corner, but you're not going. Uh-huh. You actually get to stay home, which lucky you, right? I guess I, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, gloat about it, but uh, I'm. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I mean. I- I mean, we're in a, we're, it's hard to say this without sounding like a spoiled brat, but like I've had enough E3 for a bit, and I'm sure people at home like are like, I want to go so bad, but if you go to work, it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to do. So, um, I don't want to make it seem like I'm ungrateful or anything, but it, it is really hard. E3 is a pretty amazing experience, but and I'm a fragile man too. So it's also exhausting because in addition to actually playing the games you and taking interviews you have to write about them and you pretty much never stop moving the entirety of the show but that said i am (laughs) it's weird like there has not been a lot of excitement around this e3 and there's been talk about e3's importance becoming less and less and uh, less and less important and that there's going to be a giant shift away from it but for this year at least i feel like it's going to be a really good year for rpgs bob i think well if dark souls 3 looks good then i will agree oh my gosh they're showing are they going to show dark souls 3 uh i'm almost positive it's been conf- i mean i wrote an article about it and i think polygon confirmed it so i hope to god it's true <laughs> otherwise i am just made a fool of myself but I- i'm pretty sure it is going to be there at least like a trailer or something or like a dark souls Two style teaser of like ten seconds, like they did a few years back. Hmm. Well, God, does it worry you that they're churning these out so fast? I I, I addressed that in an article I wrote. If you, if you look at the Dark Souls timeline, this is around the time after Dark Souls One that Dark Souls Two was announced. So it seems pretty on track with how they've been making these games. Although I am concerned that maybe these guys need to take to take a break from making these huge RPGs. I don't know. Maybe they're they have more, uh, you know, stamina than I'm giving them credit for. But Dark Souls has not disappointed me, and From has not disappointed me. So um, it's hard to say. Please don't make these games anymore because I just want to see more of them. 
So the reason, so I hadn't even thought about Dark Souls 3. <laughs> I'm excited for Fallout 4. Oh, yeah. And I've got a good feeling, Bob. I've got a feeling that we're finally going to get Dragon Quest 7 at this E3. I, I think I it's time. What uh, what is your rationale behind that? I mean, I, this is something that I would love to see, but so when I, it, did it come out in early 2014? Or it came out in like January of 2013. I remember. I think I was I was still at One Up, and I believe Jeremy was playing it while I was at One Up. So it was like really early 2013. It's been about two years, well over two years rather. My rationale is that Square Enix seems to be a little more understanding about its properties these days and the 3ds is big enough and i feel and there usually is a fairly large gap between when a between when a dragon quest comes out in japan and it comes out here am i wrong in feeling like it was at least it was well more than a year before Dragon Quest Nine eventually came out here because I think it came out in what two thousand nine, and it didn't make it out here until at least twenty ten, maybe even twenty eleven. Uh, it was twenty ten, I know that for sure, and I think it was almost exactly a year from its release in Japan okay. that it released here. But um, it's funny you mentioned that because it's like. These days were kind of spoiled because localization times and like different releases in different territories aren't nearly as long as they used to be. Like we usually get things either earlier than Japan or a few days later. But with 3DS games, it's like, oh, we're going to wait 18 months or we're going to wait two years to get this. And that's been the case for a lot of games that have been released like um, Layton versus Wright and Bravely Default and like Yokai Watch. These are all like 18 months to two year old games that they waited that long to bring them here. I think the unexpected success of Bravely Default might have shown that there's an appetite for this kind of game on the 3DS. And also in 2014, late 2014, Square Enix was dropping a lot of, a lot of hints that they might still be interested in localizing it. Though, of course, there was also talk about the cost of localization being prohibitive. And I sort of feel like those comments were at least in part them testing the waters to see how people would react to the possibility of Dragon Quest VII coming over to the U.S. If there was absolutely no interest, then they'd be like, eh, whatever. But there clearly is interest. And I feel like if it's ever going to come out, if it's ever going to happen, then this is going to be the E3 where it's going to get announced. So Yeah, I personally, as... As someone who spent 120 hours playing Dragon Quest VII without finishing it, I would like to play a version of this game that's actually good uh, and not as ugly or buggy or uh, poorly translated. I will not give the localizers crap for this because they were dealing with a very awful system um, that was hard to work with. Because I, th- I believe Jeremy Blaustein, or Blaustein from uh, Silent Hill 2 and other projects uh, worked on this translation. Hmm. The original translation when it was called Dragon Warrior 7. Um. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I never played that one. Did you play it? Yeah, like I said, I, I invested 120 hours in it, and I got to the uh, final boss, and it it killed me, and I was like, I'm I'm, I'm done with this. I, I never even went back <laughs> into it. I still have the save on my memory card. You put 120 it, hours into that game? That's crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's such a huge game. It's so immense. Uh, probably the biggest Dragon Quest I've ever played, even bigger than like 9, which was pretty big. 
Well, the last reason is Square Enix is having their own press conference this year, and apparently they have announcements to make. Mm. So I don't know if that means uh, U.S. release date for Final Fantasy XV. Um, I think I think they've said that Final Fantasy XV will not be shown at E3, which kind of takes it out of the equation. Uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 probably is going to figure into it. It sounds like Kingdom Hearts 3 is going to be a thing. So if well, not <laughs> Dragon Quest Seven, then I ask, what? What? That's and, true. Uh, Dragon Quest Ten. Who knows? <laughs> Dragon Quest might... Ten is never coming out here. Yeah, I, I I understand that. It just it's a, it's a weird it's a weird like entry in that series that I I'm I'm just kind of morbidly curious as to how it plays. I, I just want to try it for like a day or two, but I don't have By that much accounts, uh, initiative. It's apparently, like you know, lineage or one of those <laughs> hardcore grindy MMORPGs. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's as user, as yeah, I don't think it's as as user friendly as Final Fantasy fourteen. I just fitting Dragon Quest into the context of an MMO seems bizarre to me, and I just want to see how they do it, but. I don't want to get an import Wii or import Wii U or whatever to figure that out. I remember when it came out, um, our friends over at Eight Four were playing it a lot. Yeah, that's what I know most. Of, that's what I. That's where I picked up most of my info about it. So they were really into it, but obviously that was several years ago at this yeah. point. So I think it came out five years ago, but yeah, I don't know what else they could bring out. I know they're not going to give us the Dragon Quest theatrhythm if they did it would probably be digital i'm guessing but i don't think dragon quest music has enough clout in america for people to care i mean final fantasy final fantasy's music certainly does but i'm not so sure about dragon quest yeah you're probably right though i mean how hard would it be to localize it that's true i mean like it conceivably could just be dlc for theatrhythm i mean it just seems like they're using all the same parts so, but I mean, that's not how games really work in Japan. <laughs> so I, I can that. see why they didn't do it. I love, by the way, that everybody has a different way to pronounce that dang game. I think the I'm not I'm not correcting you, by the way. Oh, don't worry. I... Nobody nobody knows how the heck to pronounce it. But I've heard Square Enix pronounce it as theater rhythm. Yeah, the thing is, like with with uh, Japanese loan words that are made into portmanteaus, like all yeah. rules are off the table. Like just say whatever you want. Even Pokemon is like whatever. I'm going to get a little grumpy if you call it Pokemon, but at the same time, like, I don't care. Anyway, I can think of what big announcement they might have for E3 2015, uh, assuming that it's not some Western game from, like, Tomb Raider or, or whatever. I'm sure they're going to cover Deus Ex. But it, Va- a Vagrant Story 2. Uh, don't play with my heart, Bob. <laughs> don't play with my heart. No. It's Final Fantasy VII Remake. Oh, so you think that is a uh, man? Opening, I just I'm opening the Pandora's box. Okay, well, I mean, it's not something that is that is like um, I don't know. It's not something that has just been anticipated recently. Like people have been asking for this forever, and they've had to respond forever. Uh, and it's a weird situation to be in for them. I bet. I I just want to see it made so that I can watch the absolutely hilarious hype cycle that would undoubtedly ensue from it (laughs) because it's going to be the most insane and outsized hype cycle you will ever see in a game and it will and there's just no way that it will be able to live up to expectations no way can you i i can't wait until they uh that they give a voice to cloud it's going to be great yeah 
Uh, and that's the reason why I think like that game is very much attached to the time period it was created. It's the result of people figuring out technology. I believe they had like six months to, of like practice with their 3D modeling suite before they actually had to start work on the game. So it is very much like the product of, of people figuring things out. And when I see those characters appear in, in like future games, I don't like them. I don't like to hear them voiced. I don't like their attitudes or their personalities. I only like them in the context of Final Fantasy VII. And I think think this game is not going to be something i personally want to dive into i don't know i'll have to wait and see if it actually happens well if this actually happens we'll have plenty of time to talk about it but i i I just want to really quickly give the positive perspective possibly of this thing actually happening and that's i feel like if a final fantasy 7 remake were to actually happen that first of all the original game is all but unplayable at this point. I mean, it's it's really rough. And yeah, I mean, I I played through it uh like uh two summers ago when mm-hmm. I was unemployed because that's what you do when you're unemployed. And um, I was like, uh, the systems are not really figured out, and it's a little rough, but it's still playable if you if you've played it before. I think I don't know if you're new to Final Fantasy VII if you would understand it as well. But yeah, it could be better, like in terms of game design. It's also poorly paced. So oh, for sure, I yeah. feel like there's a lot of room for improvement that a good remake could make use of. The other thing is, Bravely Default at least showed that there is a real appetite for a traditional menu-based JRPG. And Final Fantasy VII is kind of the er example of that, at least on the PlayStation. Like that's the that's the one everybody knows. And in that case, I think that maybe the time is ripe for it to come out because, frankly, there's not a lot like it. And I could do with a good turn-based RPG in the traditional form with the active time battle, 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 battle (laughs) bar and all and all of that. Just give it just give it to me. Something tells me that if if this remake, if it were to come into being, if it is a 3DS game or like. It's not going to be a Vita game. The best? <laughs> I want it I think to be on the 3DS. That's the only scenario that I would want because then you could do things with it without having to spend too much money. And I believe, like, if this was a console remake, like a modern console remake, it would definitely not be turn based because they are not going to spend that much money and have people being turned off by menus. Bravely Default is very much a throwback, like an intentional throwback, I think. So, like, it knows what it's doing, and it knows who it's targeting. With Final Fantasy VII, they always wanted a mainstream audience, and I think that will, like, apply to today as well, and I really don't see it being turn-based if it is, like, a PS4 game. You know what game that I hope to see at E3 and that I'm super excited about if it will actually happen? What's that? Shin Megami Tensei Cross Fire Emblem. Oh, yeah, I've actually, that's been off my radar for a while. Just the teaser trailer alone made me go, yep, I'm in. I did see that. Is that, a, that's, is that Wii U? Uh, yeah. Or is that 3DS? Yes, okay, I thought so, yeah. It'd be nice to get another Wii U RPG. And, of course, we're going to be showing a lot of Xenoblade Chronicles X, which is already oh, out thing. in Japan. And I had Richard Eisenbeis from Kotaku on the show last week, and we talked about like the first 70 hours. It's, I really want to play it for myself, because that sounds like an interesting one. Do you know much yeah, about Xenoblade we... Chronicles X, Bob? Only really what I've heard from uh, 8.4 Play. Uh, again, they, they're pretty good at telling you a lot about Japanese games before they come out, but um, mm. at least come out here. But it seems like something I'd at least be willing to try. Some of the art choices I'm not super fond of, but um, 
like I the like how design. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, apparently that artist is pretty famous in Japan, and he worked on past, you know, games. But I don't like his art. It's kind of creepy, but mm. especially when it's rendered in 3D. I, the 2D designs are kind of okay, but yeah. But it seems like it's just a a more refined version of Xenoblade, and if they can make it a little less uh, grindy, a little less, um, I don't know. There, there was just something about Xenoblade where I could never finish it, and I still want to, but. There might have been a little too much content, and I, I don't think they're going to fix that with this game. If anything, I think they're adding more content uh, from what I've heard. And, of course, there's going to be Legend of Heroes Trails of Cold Steel, I think, coming out from Exceed uh, for the PS3 and Vita. So, hey, the Vita has life. Yeah, I <laughs> I guess you could call it that. But, uh, no, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'll play it on PS3 or Vita, but Legend of Heroes has a pretty strong reputation. I know that you played it on when it came out on Steam, right? Yeah, I only played like 10 hours, and I'm, God, I'm dying to get back to it. But um, yeah, now I'm depressed. I'm I just seem to recall, I think I was in Japan when, that la- when the last Legend of Heroes came out. Um, the one that's coming out right here. And my recollection was that, was that it was a really good-looking game. So I'm looking forward to playing it for myself in any case just just that kind of selection of games really points to a strong e3 for rpgs and i think that whether we're talking about fallout 4 or we're talking about shimagami tensei crossfire emblem or we're talking about whatever the heck square enix is going to announce i feel like rpgs are going to be very much at the forefront of everybody's mind by the end of this show and that makes me happy because i love rpgs i I don't know if they normally do this but i I hope they do something with uh bloodborne's dlc that Mm. is supposedly in the works maybe show a little bit of that at like a sony conference or something i I do want to see what what's next for that game i do you think they would put that on the main press event because they don't usually highlight dlc that's true yeah i mean I, i just want it to be maybe like a kiosk with it or like just part of a trailer or something i don't know but i think people are are crazy enough about bloodborne that they're going to put um, some effort behind it, you know, marketing. I could see I could see it being in a sizzle reel and then yeah. being shown in a press release. I at least want that. And then it being on the show floor for people to play. Yeah. So, which reminds me, I got to play Bloodborne. Uh, Do God. it. <laughs> I've been too busy with Hearthstone and Heroes of the Storm and I'm a bad person. In any case, well... E3 is starting next week. Uh, so what we're going to do is I'm bringing my recording equipment with me. We're going to have the whole crew down there. Jeremy's going to be there. Mike's going to be there. Jazz is going to be there. Bob and... Okay, I lied. <laughs> Bob is not going to be down there, so he's not going to be able to be on the show. But we're all going to be together, recording together. And we're going to record an episode of Acts of the Blood God on Tuesday night after the Square Enix presser so that we can give our instant reactions to whatever the heck they talk about and talk just a bit about uh, whatever RPGs end up being shown at the Microsoft and Sony press event, hopefully quite a lot. And I will do my best to get that episode up that week. If not that week, then definitely the week after. And uh, if if you don't mind me just kind of pimping some of our other E3 content, we're going to be streaming all week, every morning, over on our Twitch channel starting at 8.30 a.m. PST. We're going to be interviewing developers. We're going to be talking about stuff that's going on at the show. Uh, we're going to have a lot of video content over on our YouTube channel, US GamerNet. And, of course, 
come on over to our page. We're going to have a main thread where we're going to be, uh, where we'll just be talking with all of you about all of the different press conferences and just about the show in general. That'll be our main comment thread. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a crazy, crazy E3, but I think it's going to be a good one. And then I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to go to Big Sur and I'm going to disappear into the wilderness for a couple days. So you won't hear from me again for a little bit. So in any case, Bob, where can we find you on Twitter and all of the social media channels? And is there anything you want to promote? Uh, yeah, check me out on US Gamer, of course. I'm on Twitter as Bob Servo. I also do comedy articles for Something Awful, and uh, I do Retronauts, the classic gaming podcast, which I'm sure all of you know about. But if not, um, like I said, it's a classic gaming podcast. There's not much more to it. It's hosted on US Gamer, so check out that stuff. If I'm really not, proud of it. What's your problem, man? Yeah, come on. I listen to your podcast if you had one. Don't hold me to that. I listen to 35 <laughs> podcasts, please. Well, you listen to 35 podcasts. God, yeah, where can find not- the time for that? Um, whenever I'm not doing anything that involves writing, I'm listening to a podcast. So that, that's basically my life. All my podcasts are dying. I used <laughs> to listen to the BS Report, but Bill Simmons left ESPN, so that's dead. And soccer season's over, so Men in Blazers is done. So I've been just listening. So I've just been listening to a lot of uh, Mission Log, the Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, which is I gotta say, just just find a TV show you like, and there's gonna be like three podcasts about it, and that's right? that's a fun thing to do. And in usually, one of them will be good. Well, in any case, you can find all of us over on usgamernet.net. And for Tom Hewlett and Bob Mackey and myself, uh, thanks for listening and happy adventuring. See you guys. Bye.